want to welcome everybody to this evening's Mauer Report. I am so excited about tonight's show. I can't hide it. Um, special, special guest here. Well, the, the first guest is special, too. He he takes half the credit, but the the more well-known guest is the follow here. But first, let's, let's remind everybody the views and opinions of the show are those of the host and guests tonight. Uh, do not reflect any sponsors, simulcasting radio networks, or anybody else. So I don't think either of these guys are capable of saying, uh, well, I guess they're probably capable of saying career-ending stuff, but I don't think either of them, well, I know the second guest in it, but I'm pretty sure my first guest sounds in a good sane mind tonight, so I'm sure we're not going to get there. But just in case, and I've got to remind everybody to visit duckpond.shop, or duckpondshop.com. Easy for me to say. It's my website. Ugh. Anyways, go buy a t-shirt or just go buy a sticker or something. If you don't want to, if not, um, right down on the Mallard.com there below it is a spot to sign up for the free newsletter. As we know, I've been encouraging people to do this for a while because as social media sites go, we don't know. I mean, they're here. Uh, there's a whole battle about, you know, views and people wanting to buy it, want sites making you want to buy ads. So if you sign up for the newsletter, there's a 50-50 shot that you see it in your newsletter, your email. So... I'm willing to take that gamble at least. But enough about all this this fun stuff. I got Josh Mintz, uh, co-author of the Lincoln Conspiracy. Um, how are you doing tonight, Josh? Hey there, it's great to be on. How are you doing tonight? Pretty good. So let's 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 work way back in time and then bring it to the the Lincoln Conspiracy as we build to a fever pitch, so to speak. What got you? I mean. I'm guessing you have this deep, great moment when history became the light of your life. <laughs> well, it's funny. It didn't happen exactly that way. I was always interested in history, but I was not an, a history major or anything in college. Um, so it wasn't like the, the one focus of my life. But what happened was I began working in television, uh, specifically documentary television, and uh, began uh, producing and writing and directing for PBS, for the History Channel, for the National Geographic Channel, places like that, making kind of documentary programming. And partly by chance and partly because I was interested in it, I started working on a number of kind of American history-related programs. I worked for a show called History Detectives on PBS, uh, and I did a number of projects uh, for the History Channel, and it just kind of became my thing. It, It evolved. And I had always really enjoyed learning about history, but once I started making these TV shows and doing all the research that they entailed, I just really got uh, more and more into it, and it became sort of my niche, my niche in, in that world of, of documentary television. And um, I, it was some, I just really enjoyed it. I loved it. Um, and that's also where I met Brad Meltzer. We, we worked together on a show called Lost History that was on the History Channel, and uh, it was a show all about American history, and we, we bonded over it and uh, worked together quite closely. He was a host. I was a kind of behind-the-scenes uh, writing and producing guy, and uh, he liked the way I wrote. Uh, we, we shared a lot of interests, and uh, we, we bonded over American history, and that's kind of uh, what brought me to writing these books with him. Yeah, I was going to say, he has great things to say about you, which... I'm sure it doesn't surprise you, but he said them when you weren't paying it was was being recorded. So they're on the record. If you need me to send you a copy of that, just in case. <laughs> yeah, I, I might need to see proof. I might need to see some proof. <laughs> so that, I mean, it has to so, be an uh, interesting experience working through all these different shows and doing all that stuff. Did you ever get? I mean, I'm t- I guess tired of the business isn't 
the where I want to go, but did you ever feel like you were hitting your head against the wall doing all those shows early on? Well, you know, I, 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 Brad, you know, once he approached me about actually writing books together instead of, you know, we had done the TV show and we went our separate ways, but stayed in touch and I would occasionally bring him in just as an interviewee on, on, on some other shows. I did a show about the history of superheroes and I brought him in as an interviewee and we kind of remained friends. But when he approached me about writing books, he caught me at the right time because I was a little bit burned out and I was a little tired of, uh, making TV shows and, you know, just the work that it entailed. I had also just had, uh, my first child. So, you know, being a, uh, a parent is a lot of work and working on TV shows, the schedule is so crazy. And I was just a little exhausted. So when he approached me about actually writing a book, uh, and kind of leaving behind television for a while, he, he got me at just the right time. And the idea of, of doing the kind of deeper research, uh, and the kind of, really delving deeply into one story for a long time and the, just a different lifestyle of writing a book. Uh, I was really excited about it and it was just the right change at the right time. And, uh, he convinced me and, uh, and we started writing our first book together, which was about the revolutionary war. That one was called the first conspiracy, uh, which was about a conspiracy to kill George Washington. And it was a, just a lot of fun. And we, we, dove right in and, and somehow at the end of it wrote a book together. It was the first time I had written a book um, and it was a learning experience, but uh, I enjoyed it. So uh, sure enough, we signed up to do another one. As I say, it, did, it, was, uh, it went pretty well, so you did another one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it went well enough that, he, uh, that we had a conversation and said, you know what, let's do this again. Uh, it, it helped that the first book we did you know, got on the New York Times bestseller list and we got a really nice reaction from, from readers and from critics. And so that kind of, you know, that helps to light the fire. Uh, but also, I think we both really enjoyed the process and I was happy to stay away from television and, and, and do another book with him. And uh, we also happened to find a story that we both were really excited about uh, that became the story that we tell in The Lincoln Conspiracy, um, and of course, writing about Abraham Lincoln, writing about the Civil War era is endlessly fascinating to learn about, to research, to write about. And so uh, we just went really deep on this one and, and, uh, and explored that time period and just found the story that is, was just so much fun to, to, to write. So it, it was uh, another great experience. It was hard work, but it was a great experience again. What had, to, I mean, when you're sitting there, coming up with ideas it had to be hard to pick one i'd imagine you guys probably had a, your own list of i don't know five or more to kind of drill that's about right it's about right i mean we we had written our first book about you know rev, the revolutionary war era and uh george washington so the one i think general guideline we had is that we did want to try to find something in that kind of abraham lincoln slash civil war era because you know, uh, when you're when you're competing with George Washington in the Revolutionary War, you want to find something that, you know, is equally dramatic and is equally important and significant. And of course, that era has just fascinated historians and the general public alike. Uh, you know, for decades and decades and decades, and continues to. And so, we were excited to to find you know Abraham Lincoln as our subject and to find a story in that era. But from there, uh, there were several stories that we considered and we talked about. 
Um, but once we found this one, it just clicked because it combined some of the great storytelling elements that we love. Uh, it has a kind of a thrillery plot, um, you know, about this very mysterious secret society that conducts, uh, you know, secret rituals and uh, concocts this just outlandish, complicated plot to uh, potentially assassinate a new president. Um, but it also has the epic uh, backdrop of the start of the Civil War. And so it's kind of great uh, story and a great kind of thriller mystery style story with private detectives and uh, secret societies. But it also allows us to tell the bigger story of the start of the Civil War, the fight in the country over slavery, uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, becoming a new president, uh, and all of these just epic things happening in the background or happening around uh, our story. So it, it combined history with, with a great uh, just, you know, sort of knock them dead, um, page-turning kind of thriller mystery slash assassination plot story. <laughs> so it just had all the elements we love, and, and uh, it was a really exciting story, and we knew right away. And it also hadn't been told very much. Uh, you know, not too many people know about the story. Of course, everyone knows about uh, Lincoln's assassination at the hands of John Wilkes Booth in 1865, uh, but very few people know about this uh, this plot to assassinate Abraham Lincoln before he was even inaugurated, just before he was inaugurated for his first term. And um, so we felt it was something that a lot of people would learn about for the first time and, and find really new and exciting. And uh, I, that's been the reaction so far. I've got to take so, a, a plot twist here on you that isn't quite. Co- I'm sure it's not covered in your book, but it's in my mind right now. So we're just going to go down this little highway. What? What? Where do you think we are today? I mean, broad picture, right? We don't have to go into details, but where do you think we are today if they succeeded and su- assassinated them then? Well, of course, that's a you know a question a lot of people ask, and of course the answer is it's impossible to know, but it, it's also impossible not to think about it or to speculate a little bit. And, you know, with Abraham Lincoln, it's hard to answer the question because, for one thing, he's just such an iconic figure in American history. He's on the penny, you know, he, he, he's everywhere. Uh, the name Lincoln, we all grow up learning about Abraham Lincoln. His image is in our heads, and he's just part of the kind of mythology of the founding of, you know, of America and American history. So it's almost hard to imagine conceiving of America and how people think about America without Abraham Lincoln in it. So had he been assassinated before his presidency, it's just our whole conception of America and the United States would be different because there would be this void where Abraham Lincoln was. But then more specifically, there's also just his stewardship of the Civil War. And it's impossible to know how another president would have fared in in his circumstances uh, because it was just such an unprecedented event and the country was on the verge of splitting in two. And the most horrific institution in the country's history, slavery, was the thing that was splitting it apart. And you can, there are a lot of different ways the Civil War could have, the Civil War era could have ended, and most of them are bad. Uh, it could be that the, the Union did not prevail in the war. 
and the South prevailed. And who knows what kind of terrible consequence that might have had. It could have been that there was some kind of um, there was some kind of compromise that could have ended the war peacefully, but that would have sustained slavery, that would have allowed slavery to continue. Uh, that would also have been a terrible end to the Civil War era. Uh, it could be that the country just remained split and, and never became the Union again. Uh, and so the United States, as we, we know it, just simply wouldn't have existed anymore. So those are all sort of terrible results. Uh, but somehow, uh, with, with Abraham Lincoln as president, the North won the war, um, uh, the Union was restored, and perhaps most importantly, slavery was ended. The institution of slavery ended uh, because Abraham Lincoln uh, insisted on it. So would another president have accomplished all of that? We'll never know. Maybe someone else could have, but boy, there are an awful lot of terrible ways that that era could have ended, and instead we kind of probably got the best result we could have hoped for given uh, everything that was happening at that time. So that's kind of a long answer, but it's just one way of kind of imagining what might have happened had Abraham Lincoln been assassinated before he became president. So you mentioned we all kind of know Lincoln, right? I mean, I've actually got a bust uh, over over there of his head. Like, I mean, like, he's part of my life. Um, uh, 200 years, yeah, well, 150 years later. But, you, I mean, you literally spent months looking at the story and looking at him. Was there anything that you didn't know or really surprised you about once you've got that far back into it and that deep into it? That's a great question. And, of course, the answer is yes, because, you know, like I had studied uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, and the era, you know, the sort of civil started early Civil War era uh, before on some of the other projects I'd worked on. But I had never gone this deep and I had never maybe really scratched beneath uh, you know, the, the, the basic facts. And once you really delve in to a person's life and you read all of the, not all of the letters, but because there's so many, but, um, uh, but you read a lot of the writing and the letters and you learn all the details, there's just things that come out that you weren't expecting. And, um, you know, one is, we all know that, that Abraham Lincoln had a kind of a tough frontier up, upbringing. That's part of the myth. But when you really learn about the deprivation of his early life, it's still shocking. And, uh, I mean, this was a person who just came from nothing, and he came from a place of tremendous suffering. Um, it wasn't just that it was a tough frontier upbringing. He lived in poverty. He was surrounded by illness. His mother died in front of him when he was 11 years old. Uh, she caught this rare disease called the, uh, that was known as the milk sickness from drinking you know, uh, milk that had, it was contaminated. Um, and he watched her suffer and die in front of him for a couple of weeks. She went from being the healthy mother that he loved to being dead in two weeks. And he watched it happen. Uh, and then he was left, you know, with just him and his older sister at 11 years old and his father, who was a really tough, stern guy. They're living in poverty in this tiny, uh, cabin, left them alone so that he could go back to Kentucky to find a new wife. And so he left an 11-year-old, and a, she was either 12 or 13 at the time, alone by themselves in a cabin in the woods uh, for six weeks to just fend for themselves and feed themselves. And then 
showed up six weeks later with uh, with a new wife, and uh, and as she remembered it, they were just filthy and looked like wild animals when she returned and found them there. That's just one little example. Um, but he worked, you know, this incredibly tough manual labor. His father did not want him to be educated, so he had to educate himself, um, and he taught himself to read and write, you know, with a stick in the grass. Um, and he really suffered, and a lot of people around him suffered. And it wasn't, he always, he never wanted to romanticize uh, the poverty of his upbringing because it wasn't romantic. It was tough, and it was brutal, and he really had scars from it. And uh, he, his older sister died not long, not too long after his mother died, and he was, he was, he had really had a tough, tough time. And it's all the more remarkable that he was able to kind of rise up from those circumstances, and uh, not just educate himself, but kind of find the willpower and the toughness and the determination uh, coming from absolutely nothing to find his way in the world, and of course, eventually rise up to be the most powerful position in the land. Uh, and kind of connected to that, another thing I would say that surprised me, <coughs> or that I at least learned more in more depth, was that he was, he was not always a confident person, and the people around him uh, didn't have a lot of uh, faith in him. He, he, partly because he came from such a poor background, because he was relatively inexperienced, uh, he had a lot of doubters. A lot of people around him didn't think he was capable of the job, didn't think he had uh, the tools, didn't think he had the leadership qualities, and he had a lot of really dark moments of the soul where he um, he he really doubted his own abilities. He did not come into this with a, 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 a much confidence, and not only that, but he was entering the presidency in just the absolute most difficult circumstances you could ever imagine for a new inexperienced president. Um, between the time he was elected president and the time of his inauguration, that's when six states seceded from the Union. Uh, in that period between his election and his inauguration, can you imagine uh, taking on the presidency of the United States, probably the hardest job in the world, and in addition to that, six states have dec have rebelled and and seceded from the union. And it's like, okay, good luck, uh, good luck being president uh, under those circumstances. So I, I had never fully appreciated the challenges he was facing and the amount of self doubt uh, that he had uh, coming into this job. And and then there, I mean, he wasn't even. I mean, he did serve a term in the state house, but it wasn't even a career politician, right? I mean, like this was a totally new arena for him compared to what he was. I mean, he was a lawyer. I mean, right. Like this is a complete. Yeah. He, he, he had done a term in, in Congress, uh, and he had served in the state house, as you said, but then he was sort of done with politics for a while. So that's really a very small amount of experience, very little federal experience and some, some local experience, but he was a relatively unseasoned politician, and he had been away from it uh, for several years when he kind of got back into it, and he, he tried to run for Senate in 1858, and he failed. Uh, he had already lost the previous Senate race. So by the time it got to the nomination um, in 1860, he was someone who hadn't been in politics for a long time. He was very little—he wasn't well-known nationally— 
And the last two big races he ran, he lost uh, for the Senate. So he really didn't have many credentials uh, compared to a lot of the people he was up against. Uh, so uh, he was he was a dark horse uh, to win the nomination uh, for his party. And then he, you know, it was partly by luck that he won the presidency. So it was a very unlikely uh, outcome that, that of all people uh, in 1860, that Abraham Lincoln, this lawyer, from Illinois, who grew up in the frontier, would be the president, but that's what happened. I, I'm sitting, I'm sitting here now, right? And all I can see is all these campaign ads on YouTube and everywhere you look, right? And we're months out still, and all of the advantages we have today, like to get a message out. And there's this, <laughs> I can't even imagine, right? How different the world was then, trying to, well, as we're saying, travel by train, right? through the night like i'm just dumbfounded by the whole situation in a good way yeah yeah i know well it's fascinating to read and and you know one of the funny details we bring up in the book is that he was so uh so unknown uh when he won the nomination to be president i mean to run for president to be the nominee of his party um uh, he was so uh so unknown that people kept misspelling his name uh the new york times uh, spelled his, called him Abram, A-B-R-A-M. And some of the actual, uh, sort of, uh, flags that were created as kind of banners during the presidential run, because people in other states didn't know much about him, they also misspelled the name because they had read it in the papers. So even during his campaign for the presidency, there are still, you can find them, banners and flags that misspell his first name. Um, so that's just kind of how you can't imagine that happening today. Uh, but at the time, you know, they're just, we didn't have the technology and, and there wasn't television. And so if a newspaper got his first name wrong, then, you know, uh, the local party would also misspell his name and these flags would be circulated, uh, and people didn't even know how to spell the, the, <laughs> the first name of the person running for president. Um, so it was a very different time. And then, of course, as you said, transportation was very different. Um, everything was by rail. Um, and so it took a long time to get from one place to another. Uh, so it, it, politics was different. Everything was different. And uh, that was the kind of scenario when uh, Abraham Lincoln um, was planning his journey once he had won the election to get from Springfield to Washington, D.C. to be inaugurated. And that's the pocket of time in which our story takes place. Yeah, I was just going to ask about that. How long was he on the train? I mean, I mean, I'm thinking days, right? Because he was doing different events as well. Yeah. So, you know, once he won the nomination, there was a period of several months before he was to be inaugurated. It was, uh, I believe, four months, a little bit longer than it is now. Um, and, you know, one of his first tasks was to figure out how he and his allies in Springfield were going to get to Washington, D.C., and there was a tradition then of doing a kind of public inaugural journey, um, and various presidents had, had done that in different ways, and it's a way to kind of, for people to physically see uh, a president pass through their town and pass through their city, and because, you know, you don't get to see, you didn't get to see presidents on television, it was kind of the only way for people to get a you know, to, to, to actually observe how someone talked and to hear their voice and to see to see them perform in, in a speech and, and a way to just kind of gin up support. So he was determined to do a kind of public 
tour, uh, but his was to be the longest uh, of any other president before him because he was the first president who was truly a kind of a creature of the West. Uh, he was from Illinois, which was the farthest Western state uh, on the frontier at that time, in, uh, in the northern frontier. And so no, no president had, had done a journey quite this far. And he, um, he planned this incredibly elaborate uh, inaugural train ride to get from Springfield, Illinois, to Washington, D.C. And it was, ended up being a 12-day journey. Um, and that was with, you know, these incredibly long traveling days. But uh, they, they worked out this complicated train route, switching train carriers, switching rail, railroad lines several times. And um, he wanted to hit all the big cities uh, in the north. So it, it's this sort of winding, you can see maps of it, it's this winding journey that goes through, you know, it doesn't go to New England, but it goes through, uh, you know, Illinois and Indiana and Ohio and all the way through New York State. It goes into Philadelphia. Uh, it goes through Pennsylvania and it hits uh, most of the big cities along the way and a lot of small towns as well. And he could stop and give speeches and attend events and the local mayors and governors would would kind of co-host big events with him and, and he would stay at these hotels and the hotels would be totally mobbed and he was traveling with, you know, it was a, a kind of a traveling roadshow of all these different people who were getting on and off the train. His family was with him. Some personal friends were with him. His kids were there for some of the journey. Um, and, and then, um, again, the local politicians would join for portions of it. It was just crazy. And they had to all carry all the luggage and he was staying in all these different hotels and they had to work out security and, and the logistics. Uh, so it was a very complicated, two-week journey, um, and that's the, the journey that we really focus on in our book because that's when this assassination plot is kind of set to happen while he's traveling. Yeah, in the final days, I mean, like, to get to that point, it's had to have been successful. I mean, tw- two weeks on a train, it just, I mean, anyways, blows Yeah, you mind. actually... I know, and reading about it and writing about it, you, even just thinking about it, you get exhausted because uh, he's traveling these, you know, just these 14-hour days, giving multiple speeches, and then he gets to some city at night, and he has to meet 600 people, and he has to go to this big dinner, and then he has to give another speech at night, and then there's a reception, and then there's a party, <laughs> just one thing after another, and then they all sleep for about four hours, and then they get up and have to get on the train again and, uh, and, and, you know, rinse and repeat. And, um, and as far as the plot, um, the plot, the reason this plot had such a good chance at being successful is it was a bunch of conspir- the conspirators were based in the city of Baltimore and Maryland at that time was a slave state and the slave states did not like this new president. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was enemy number one to any state that wanted to uh, preserve slavery because that was what the big battle in the country was over at that time. The North uh, and the South were divided over slavery, and Maryland, although we don't necessarily think of it now as a Southern state, at the time, Maryland was very much allied with with the Southern states. It was a slave state. Um, uh, Slavery was very important to the economy of Maryland. There were a lot of wealthy, powerful slave owners in the state. And so uh, Abraham Lincoln was an anti-slavery candidate. He was coming in as an anti-slavery president, and so uh, Maryland did not like Abraham Lincoln. And there was a group in the city of Baltimore uh, who were uh, allied with this 
this secret society known as the Knights of the Golden Circle, who were this fascinating group, kind of a precursor to the Ku Klux Klan. Um, and there were this group who were associated with the Knights of the Golden Circle, and they uh, really did not want Abraham Lincoln to become president. And, um, and so... And so this group uh, in Baltimore were trying to come up with a way to prevent his inauguration at all costs. And the scheme they eventually came up with was to assassinate Abraham Lincoln. And the reason they had a good shot at doing this was that the only way to get to Washington, D.C. by train, if you're the only way if, to get to uh, Washington D.C. by train, if you're coming from the north, is to go through Baltimore. It's the only it's the only way to do it. The only link between Baltimore and Washington D.C. is just one. Uh, the only the only uh, northern route to watch to Washington D.C. is through Baltimore. So they all knew that Lincoln was coming through there. And once his itinerary was published, um, it was anyone could know uh, exactly on which day and at which time Abraham Lincoln and his kind of inaugural, uh, his inaugural uh, train would be arriving in Baltimore. And not just that, but once you get to Baltimore, you have to, if you're coming from the north, you have to get out of one, you have to change trains by leaving one train station, crossing through the city, and getting to another train station, and then boarding a different train. So no matter what he did, Abraham Lincoln would have to cross through the city of Baltimore uh, by carriage, uh, presumably by carriage, in order to get from one train station to the other. And he was uh, scheduled to arrive in the middle of the day and cross through the city of Baltimore um, with, you know, just crowds of people able to, to witness his carriage as it's crossing through the city. And there was going to be uh, an escort, a police escort, um, or at least uh, there was supposed to be a police escort, but as it turned out, maybe there wasn't going to be a police escort. So he was going to be exposed. And so this group of uh, of pro-slavery, anti-Lincoln plotters saw an opportunity that uh, while he was passing through the city, they could create a distraction. And in this kind of chaos of all these crowds, they could have a shot at him. They could, they could, they could create a distraction and then swarm his carriage and, with guns or knives, they could they could assassinate him uh, while he's traversing the city, and uh, so that became their plan, and um, and and you know it was a pretty good plan all told, and 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 they started scheming and planning how to do it, and uh, they were just sort of waiting for him to get to the city. And I guess the other thing is with his height, he wasn't exactly the easiest person in the world to hide. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He was. He was a solid six four, and um, at the time, the average height I think it was about five eight in in the country, or maybe even five seven. And six four was a very unusual height. It's still unusual now, but at the time, it was even more unusual. So he was the tallest person. Most people who laid eyes on Abraham Lincoln, he was the tallest person they had ever seen. Um, uh, he was almost freakishly tall, and so uh, you throw on the, the top hat on top of that, and. He was a very conspicuous target, and uh, you know, basically impossible uh, to to for him to mix into a crowd. Um, so uh, they knew that uh, they knew when he was coming, uh, they knew how he was traveling, and so it was actually a plot that had quite a good chance of succeeding had it not been foiled. 
So I've got I've got some live listeners, and I love this question because I I feel like I should know the answer to this question, but I don't, and I don't know if you know it either. And somebody out there with Google will have to help us. But the Lincoln had pets, though, right? I believe there was uh, was it a dog? Uh, yes. Uh, well, one of the things you know, this is another little you know uh, fact about Lincoln that I didn't know so well uh, that I learned in the course uh, of writing this book and researching this book, but. From a very early age, as a child, he became an animal lover, and not just an animal lover, but when he was, I can't remember the exact age, 10, 11, 12, he suddenly, um, he had this interesting experience where he was out hunting, as every young kid would learn to hunt if you grew up in the frontier, and he killed a large bird, and uh, might have been a turkey, and you know, he went, he, he shot the bird, he came up to retrieve the bird, and the bird was still alive after it had been shot, and he saw it suffering on the ground. And he was so grief-stricken um, uh, watching this bird suffer that basically right there and then he vowed that he would never shoot uh, a large animal ever again. And this is a kid growing up in, in the frontier where everyone hunts, and it's just expected. But he made that vow, and he stuck to it. Uh, and he just was an animal lover. And, and so as he grew up, he always wanted to be around animals, and he always had pets. And uh, at the time he made this cross-country journey, uh, they had a family dog uh, in Springfield. But uh, they made the determination that he, he made the determination he just could not travel with his dog. It wasn't practical to travel with the dog all the way across the country. So uh, he found someone else who could watch the dog in, in Springfield. But he felt so bad about it because the, his kids, you know, uh, who were two young boys at the time, uh, just loved the dog. And so he had to bring in a photographer to take a, a photograph of the dog so that the, his, his boys could travel with the photograph. Otherwise, you know, they would have been too upset. So uh, they traveled with the photograph of the dog. But once he got to the White House, eventually he uh, he he had more pets and uh, got another dog. But, yeah, he was a real animal level lover, and that was something I didn't really know about him. And how great is it that we have these, these pictures still? I mean, right? Like Matthew Brady took these great pictures that we all know, and that's it. Right. I mean, I guess I guess some I guess there are a couple other ones floating around, but there's I mean, without those glass uh, slides, we don't have any we don't have any clue. I mean, you, 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 yeah, think, about, you think about today's social media and there's hundreds of there's probably hundreds of well, hundreds of pictures of me. Right. And there's a dozen pictures of him. Yeah, no, it is amazing. And, and we are fortunate that, you know, the medium of photography had evolved really just around this time uh, that uh, uh, we have all these portrait photographs of Abraham Lincoln. And of course, it also meant that we, there now, there were photographs of the Civil War, Civil War battlefields. And so it just so happened that that the medium of photography had advanced enough by the time Lincoln was running for president that we, that we get these photographs of that era of him and of, uh, of what he experienced as president, as president and of the Civil War. So, uh, it is so fortunate that we have those those artifacts, those photographs. So I get oh, I good thing I looked. Uh, do you see this becoming uh, a TV series or a film? Or I mean, obviously that's kind of the hope, right? But do you, do you think it will be? Well, uh, we don't know. Uh, it certainly feels to us like it would make a great movie. I mean, and we 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 took took the approach with this book of. Now, we, we, 
in our writing, we try to be what you might call cinematic, um, in that uh, we, we try to tell the story as if you're watching it, as if you're experiencing it, uh, as opposed to maybe a more academic style. Um, so we, we try to really bring the reader in so that you're almost like you're, you're enveloped by the story or you're watching a movie of the story and it, it's just moving forward and, um, and uh, we try to make it as kind of visual as possible. Um, uh, and so it certainly feels to us like it would be great subject matter for a documentary or for, you know, some kind of fictional adaptation, but it's too early to know whether that will happen. Uh, but certainly something we're going to hope for. And uh, where can people find you? I mean, obviously they could find the Lake of Conspiracy at Barnes and Noble and Amazon and everywhere fine books are sold, but, uh, where can they find you at? Uh, well, thanks for asking. Yeah, you, you can uh, find me at Twitter. I'm uh, at Josh Mensch, J-O-S-H-M-E-N-S-C-H. It's a name that people tend to misspell. Uh, it's also, of course, on the cover of the book, so you can find my name there. So I'm at Josh Mensch on Twitter. Uh, my website is joshmensch.com. Uh, very easy, and that also has my, uh, you know, my Facebook and my Instagram addresses. Uh, but Twitter and my website are the best places to find me. Um, and uh, you know, I enjoy uh, interacting with uh, with readers and love hearing what people have to say about the book and their reactions to it, whether they're good or bad, um, and you know what they find most interesting. Uh, so yeah, I really enjoy communicating with uh, with readers. Well, thank, thank you for ma- being available for me tonight and working through this as we kind of piece this together off of uh, off a limb, so to speak. So I, I appreciate you deeply for that. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. And uh, you know where to find me if anything else good comes up. I'm always interested in American history, so keep me in the loop. Absolutely, I will. Talk, talk to you later. Okay, great. Oh, cut him off. Didn't mean to. I guess I did. Um, this next part was filmed yesterday with, or filmed, recorded with, uh, Brad Melzer, the host of Decoded, uh, New York Times bestseller. As soon as I hit play and you hear his voice, you'll know who I'm talking about. Um, I'm just going to play it and we'll talk a little bit about it before I run out of time here. So let's do that. I, hey, I want to welcome everybody. I'm really excited about this. I, hey, I want to welcome everybody. I'm, I'm really excited about this. Or maybe here we go. I, hey, I want to welcome everybody. I'm, I'm really excited about this. I, hey, I want to welcome everybody. I'm, I'm really excited about this. Why aren't you playing? That is ridiculous. Okay, here we go. I, hey. I want to welcome everybody. I'm really excited about this next segment of Brad Melzer, best-selling author of uh, a number of books. I, I didn't even try to count. I don't, know, I don't even know if Brad knows how many. But the newest release is The Lincoln Conspiracy. How are you doing today, Brad? I'm good. Good to hear your voice. So tell me tell me about The Lincoln Conspiracy. I mean, I, I've kind of been a Civil War buff, so I kind of have an idea, but we're, we're, tell me a little bit more. Sure. So we all know the story of how John Wilkes Booth ended Lincoln's presidency. This is actually the true secret plot to kill Abraham Lincoln at the very start of that presidency. Because to be sworn in as America's 16th president, Abraham Lincoln had to take a train from his home in Springfield, Illinois, to Washington, D.C. 
and the only way to get there was you had to go through Baltimore. But Maryland at the time was a slave state. So the plot was very simple. A secret society planned to kill Abraham Lincoln as he came through Baltimore, ending his presidency before it even started. And they almost pulled it off. I mean, they would have pulled it off if somebody hadn't jumped the jumped the conspiracy. Yeah, so what happens is uh, there's a train flying through the middle of the night, and on this train there's a bunch of passengers. We're focused on really three of them. There's a businessman, there's a woman, and she has an invalid brother. But none of them are who they say they are. The businessman is actually famed detective Alan Pinkerton of the Pinkerton Detective Agency. The woman is Kate Warren, America's first female private eye. And her so-called brother is not her brother at all. He's certainly not an invalid. That's Abraham Lincoln. And they literally are whistling away. They put him in a, in a they give him a code word. They give him a code name. They literally put him in disguise and they whisk him away to avoid this secret society that is, uh, that is trying to intercept him. And by the way, I just ruined chapter one of the Lincoln conspiracy, but, uh, but I, I think you get the point. I mean, it's just an amazing story. And, and we should talk a little bit about the Pinkertons and how they do exactly that. Yeah, I was gonna say I, I I don't think you I don't want you to spoil the whole book here, but no, I mean it's I I not this isn't political, right? The, where I'm going, it's just amazing to me to think about the president riding a train kind of through the night by himself, kind you know, or he just with one guy, or the future president, or you know, all the all the I mean, Doris Kearns Goodwin's has a great book, The Team of Rivals, and just to see how he put up with his cabinet, let alone the stresses of war and all this other stuff, and to think that we almost missed that because of this it just still blows yeah away and, and of course i mean you know one of the things we do with our heroes in this world is we build these grand statues of them in washington dc and around the country and then we worship at their feet and we do them a huge disservice when we do that because as much as it's nice to honor them we start and, and we start to forget that they're human beings and so we all know Abraham Lincoln at the end of his journey, right? We know that, he, that we win the Civil War, the Emancipation Proclamation, frees, you know, takes care and makes sure slavery is, you know, starts the end of it, which is wonderful. All the great achievements he has. But this is the start of Abraham Lincoln's presidency, is what the Lincoln Conspiracy is about. And so you get to see him make mistakes. You see him doubt himself. You see that when he actually gets the nomination for the presidency, you know what he's doing? He's in an alleyway playing handball. Right? That's what he's just a regular guy. I love the fact that he's so disorganized that they lose the inaugural address for his first inauguration. And to me, that's not a bad thing. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to see that Abraham Lincoln is just like us because we are all of us scared and amazing and we're terrified and we're brave. Some of us in the same day, some of us in the same few minutes. And it's a reminder that we're all human beings. So, you know, to me, that was a vital part of the book is to show, um, you know, just as you see him putting together in, in that wonderful book, which I agree is his cabinet, is, but even watch him take office, watch what happens and see how he wins and then watch within three days, it all start falling apart because they're coming to kill him. It's just remarkable. So you, you've wrote about a lot of fascinating people. What What's the common thread between them all? Uh, I've been thinking about that, right? The last book we did was the first conspiracy about the secret plot to kill George Washington. Here we are with the Lincoln conspiracy, of course, to try and kill Abraham Lincoln. And I'm like, why are these two guys the best presidents? Almost anyone agrees. It's one of the few things we agree on. You know, they both kind of had 
they come from nothing. They're kind of very self-taught, Washington by his brother, Lincoln by himself. Um, but it's not poverty that makes greatness, right? Because there's plenty of people who live in poverty, and we never, ever, you know, achieve that. Um, what I like to think it is, is they both have one thing in common when it comes to leadership. They understand that leadership is not about being in charge. It's about taking care of those in your charge. Leadership is not about saying, look what I know, look what I can do, I'm the best, I'm the smartest. Um, you know, it's about realizing you don't know the most. The smartest people I know always will acknowledge they don't know the most. They need help. We all do. And I, I think most important what, what these great people have in common is um, is that that sense of looking out for other people makes us want to be better people ourselves. And and I think the best leaders that we look up to are the ones that we aspire to be and we want to be like personally. And, and it's rare, especially these days, that the whole country can agree. But I was on to promote this book. I visited my friends on Fox News and I visited my friends on NPR. I was on both shows, both different things, both, you know, stand on different sides of the country, but both agree Abraham Lincoln is among the best of us. That's what being the best actually is when everyone can kind of agree on that. Which, like you said, does not happen today on pretty much anything. Right. Well, that's, you know, that's a big part of the book. You know, one of the things that it's very titillating for me to come on and tell you about the secret plot to kill Abraham Lincoln. Um, but the reason that Josh Mensch, my co-writer, and, you know, and I started writing this book was because of the context that it was in. This is a time in America for Abraham Lincoln where the country is divided, where whatever side you're on, you hate the other side. Whatever the other side is, you think they're horrible, awful people. Does that sound familiar to you? That's exactly where we are right now. And this book you know, shows you, as I said, what great leaders do to get out of that. Talk to me a minute about Josh, because I had not seen his name before this. Yeah, so Josh and I, uh, he, we worked together on the previous book about the plot to kill George Washington, where we met was on our History Channel TV show, Lost History. And Josh was our executive producer, he's an award-winning documentarian, the best researcher and writer to have any research help like crazy. I just, they were too big to try and do by myself, and, and while I'm writing thrillers and while I'm doing other things. So I said to Josh, hey, you want to write a book together? He said, I never wrote a book. I said... I've seen your writing. We're going to be just fine. And uh, and when you pick your best researcher and writer on the show, uh, the results speak for themselves. Because Josh and I just, we always, what what I, what I think is our, our best strength together is we always agree on what the best parts are. And it's hard to know what the best parts are, right? Well, your best part is maybe different than mine, but Josh and I always see eye to eye on that. For instance, yeah. one of my favorite, and one of my favorite parts in the whole book is the scene where you see Abraham Lincoln is actually told for the first time what uh, that there's a, a plot to kill him. And it's late at night, he's in a hotel room, he's exhausted from a day of shaking hands, and they say, listen, sir, you know, there's a credible threat to kill you. I know you have an event in Philadelphia tomorrow, let's skip the event and get you out of here. And Lincoln says, I'm not missing the event in Philadelphia. And they're like, why? And he says, because the next day, what they're doing in Philadelphia is they're honoring the birthday of Abraham Lincoln's hero, a man named George Washington. And George Washington, is, you know, Abraham Lincoln is not missing George Washington's birthday party. No way. So he goes the next day, God bless Josh Mensch, he found the actual speech that was given that day. And in that speech, Abraham Lincoln does go to Philadelphia, risks his life to do it, potentially, 
And he sits there and talks about in his speech, as they raise an American flag, that the ideals of the Declaration of Independence, he says that everyone gets an equal chance in life. That if we can't keep the country together and save it with that, and then Abraham Lincoln pauses a moment and says, well, then you should assassinate me on this spot rather than have me surrender. And I love the fact that Abraham Lincoln knows in that moment that there is a plot to kill him. And they whisk him out of there soon after. I won't tell you how they get him out of there because it's so wild to see. But that's potentially the moment where they save Abraham Lincoln's life. So let's, let's, let's turn the conversation just a moment. Uh, advice for people who are interested in writing or, or young younger people who are thinking about getting into writing. What do you, what do you think? Um, my advice to them is, yeah. uh, you know, so I got on my first book 24 rejection letters. There were only 20 publishers. I got 24 rejection letters, which means some people were writing me twice to make sure I got the point. Um, but I said, if they don't like that book, I'm going to write another and if they don't like that book, I'm going to write another. And I don't look back on the experience and say, well, I was right and they were wrong and ha-ha on them. I look back and realize that whatever it is you want to do when you want to write your book, don't let anyone tell you no. Don't let anyone tell you no. Keep writing, keep writing, keep writing. You just got to find one person to say yes. Your job is to find that person. So take me back to the first time you found out you were on the New York Times bestseller list. That had to be special. Yeah. Yeah? I said your job is to find that person. Oh, no, I said take me back to the first time you found out you were on the New York Times bestseller list. Sorry, oh, sorry, you moved cut out there a moment. Sorry, I lost it a second. <laughs> um, first moment I found out, oh my gosh, thank you for that. Um, the truth is, I barely even knew what a bestseller list was when we found out we were on it. My family didn't have hardcover books, you know, many of them in our house. My parents, you know, my mom used to read The Star and the Inquirer. My dad liked the sports page. I don't remember them ever reading a single book. And um, I remember that when, when we found out that I was on it, I was at my then uh, wife's, it was my girlfriend from high school, my wife's house that belonged to her parents, and it was back in the day of fax machines. And the fax machine came through with my name on the New York Times bestseller list, and I turned to my wife, and, and we had just been through, like, the launch of this, my first book and got, like, you know, incredible write-ups and in everything from, you know, Time Magazine to USA Today to Vanity Fair. It was absurd. I couldn't believe anyone was saying something nice in it because the first book never sold. This was my second book that actually sold. My, after I got my 23rd and 24th rejection letter, I started a new book and said, if they don't like that, I'm going to write another, and if they don't like that, I'll write another. Um, and so 10th Justice was, was the one that came through and actually I got lucky and, it, and someone said yes and I turned to my wife and I said let the backlash begin and sure enough a week that same week a week later after everyone said how great the book was Entertainment Week, Weekly came out and gave me a D plus um, a D plus I mean I got like seller reviews I'm, I'm not saying it was the best you know book of all time but it was like literally like they just it just felt like one of those like oh yeah you think you're so good watch this so uh the backlash did of course quickly begin um but i'll never forget that moment sitting with that fax machine and staring at my name going how is that happening it's got, it, it said it gave me goosebumps thinking about being in that moment so i can't imagine what it does to you still thinking about it um how do you how do you sleep i mean you've got all these uh, all these ideas in your head and all the stuff you're working on how how do you go to, how do you Yeah, I, you know, I, 
I will say I have to not work at night because if I'm working at night, my brain starts running and I can't sleep because I'm writing in my head. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, and, I, and these days as I get older, I can't possibly remember anything. I got to write everything down. So, uh, but the truth is, is as you know, you find time for the things you love. And what I love is a good story. I love a good story. I've always loved, so I, sometimes that story is a fictional thriller like The Escape Artist. Sometimes that story is a kid's book, like our line of kid's books, where we did I Am Amelia Earhart, and I Am Abraham Lincoln, and I Am Rosa Parks. And sometimes those stories are uh, nonfiction adult books, like The Lincoln Conspiracy. But they all have my same core belief at the center of them, which is I believe ordinary people change the world. I don't care where you go to school or how much money you make. I believe in regular people and their ability to affect change in this world. And that's why I believe an unknown guy from Illinois named Abraham Lincoln. Uh, that's, that's the best part. Yeah, there's, if there's ever a story to inspire somebody that may think they're down on their luck or whatever, it's, it's Lincoln to just come from legitimately nowhere to uh, change the Yeah, no, I mean, that. listen, and that's what people say when you read the Lincoln Conspiracy. You know, people say, well, what if he died? What if he did die early? What if What if that's what happened? What if they, the original plot to kill him did work like that? And I look back on that, and I don't feel like, you know, and you'll see our theories at the end of the book on what might have happened, but the one thing I can say is this, is that in that moment, you know, if you lose Abraham Lincoln... You lose the story of Abraham Lincoln and the story of that boy who, you know, grows up in poverty and learns how to teach himself how to read with a stick in the dirt by teaching himself the alphabet and then ascends to the highest office in the land is not just the story of our 16th president. That's the story of the American dream itself. So I think if God forbid something happens to him early in his career, my goodness, that's, you know, I think the, the changes for us as a country are just profound. So going back to things that got you ripped, no, I'm just kidding. But th- this is really positive, and I know we're almost we're short on time, so I want to end here, kind of. Um, if, oh, geez, I guess it's been when did you do the TED talk about writing your own obituary? Ten years ago. Uh, I mean, it made, it's getting close to that. It may be close to that. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, as I say, either way, either way, we're not in that window, I guess. And then I probably seen it like four years ago, and let me tell you. I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for for doing that and saying that because it really helped me put some things in perspective, the things that matter and the things that don't. No, it's funny. I was just telling, maybe this is why we're speaking, Jim. I was just talking to someone on the other line right before you called in the last interview, and he told me that his father passed away. And I said, you know, you're not here to tell me the story I'm not here to tell you about the Lincoln Conspiracy or, or Haka book to you. I said, you were actually, we're talking so I can help you with this. I said, when my, when my mom and dad passed, um, one of the things, everyone gave me useless advice that was, that was meaningless to me. But one of the people that said something that was actually helpful when my mom died said to me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to pass this message to you and you need to pass it along. And, and they said to me, our mothers never leave us ever and I needed that message on that day and I feel like that TED talk that little TEDx talk that I did I should say was so meaningful for that moment in life where I was so thank you for bringing that up and letting me pass along that message because hopefully there'll be someone out there who needs that yeah I'll make sure I get that linked in the show notes as well but it's just 
because we get so like right now we feel so trapped at home and not you know being ourselves right and then but to think about all the stuff that we have done and will do again in the future really puts that all in perspective so i'm glad that we got to bring that up thank you sir well, Brad, I wish you the best of success going forward. Not that you need much more success. I mean, you've you've got it kind of figured out, I think, at this point. No, we never have it figured out. In fact, I'll, I'll leave you with this. Every single day, and, and it's funny, when you say that on Twitter and on Facebook, everyone that comes and follows me is always like, I need that message today, I need that message today. I'm always like, you don't, you know, you'll find that message yourself. But I'll, I'll, I will leave you with this message, is that when I got my 23rd and 24th rejection letter, they were supposed to be acceptance letters. 21 through 22 all didn't like the book, but 23 and 24, my agent told me, really did like it. In fact, I had meetings with the 23rd and 24th editors because they really liked the book. And, and she said to me, they're going to make a bid on the book. They're going to they're going to actually maybe buy it. So she told me to stay by your phone. Back in the day, be pre-cell phones when you know, stay by your phone. And I, uh, I stood by my phone waiting for her to tell me I was in so much debt from college and from law school that I was like just waiting for her to tell me that I was finally going to be able to pay off that debt. And I waited to pick up the phone and I picked up the phone and it rang and she said to me, sorry, kiddo. And to this day, Jim, every day that I sit down to write for over 20 years now, I replay that moment to myself. Literally the phone I was holding in my hand was one of those clear see-through ones where you could see the wires. It seemed high tech at the time. I see the desk on my left with the swivel lamp from college that everyone has. The bed with just a box spring under it, no headboard on my right. The little uh, terrace that I'm standing and looking over, and then the parking lot past that. And on my left is a fire station. I count the three doors of the fire station mentally in my head, and then I say those words, sorry, kiddo, because I never, ever want to think what you just said, which is that I made it. I never, ever want to be anything but as hungry as I was when I was 22 years old. I never, ever want to think that, you know, I don't have the hunger that I did. And I certainly never want to not appreciate this incredible, amazing opportunity that I got when some one person picked up my book and said, yes, I want to be thankful every day. And for 20 years now, every single day I sit down to write, write it. Sorry, kiddo. Sorry, kiddo. Sorry, kiddo. So there's, I'll leave you with my secret. That's my magic trick. Well, I've got one for you. Uh, probably 2000, October 2012, I sent you an email. Um, you had a book coming out, and you, you replied to me, um, not doing interviews at this time. Just a really short thing. And I'm like, oh, okay. And what is this, eight years later? Well, seven and a half years later, here we are. So, yes, stay after it. That's all I can say. Thanks, Brad. No, yeah, don't let anyone tell you no. And sorry about that. That doesn't even sound like me. I wonder, maybe from the publisher said it, but I love you for pursuing it, and I'm glad we got to do it, my friend. Well, thank you. Have, have a good afternoon. You too, Jim. Thanks so much. And I'm glad we got to do it too. And I, I, you know, I don't often get to sit back and relax and enjoy these, these interviews with you as they're happening. I am, you know, there's grabbing gears and, and focused in on what the task at hand. Uh, but to enjoy the last 20 minutes of Brad Melzer again, or for the first time with you is good. And that I kept teasing, you have to stay with this. You have to stay with this. That is why. Because how that interview ended takes him to a whole other place in my, my heart. And he'll be part of this show for a long time, even if he doesn't come back on. Right? That's inconsequential for those 
for those few moments there. That was really cool. Coming up on nine years of doing this show, and every week I leave here um, wondering who's next. Or sometimes I know, sometimes I don't. Um, but uh, there are shows that um, make a difference, and that this tonight has been one of those shows because the Lakin story is just amazing. I am glad that we got to cover it tonight. Talk to you soon. Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcasts. 